Hello and welcome to Date Your Ego, Marry Your Soul podcast. I'm your host, Serafina, and I'm delighted you have chosen to join me. The podcast until now has had seasonal themes, but from now on, we're going to explore individual episodes with humans who have transcended their egos and married their souls. So for my first interview, I have someone wonderful and interesting for you to meet, Mark N. Spencer author of the book Ocean of Self, joins us today from Perth, Australia. Mark is an avid ocean diver and underwater photographer. He's also a practitioner of transcendental meditation for over 40 years. And in this book titled The Ocean of Self, Mark shares with us his experiences underwater. He shares with us his experiences interacting with wildlife underwater. He also shares with us the parallels he was able to draw between his spiritual life and his life under the ocean. Mark talks to us about so many interesting subjects, superstring theory and its connections with Vedic science. He talks to us about the speciality of manta rays he talks to us about how we can measure the benefits of meditation, like actually measure the benefits of meditation. And we go through a whole string of subjects. This interview is for anyone who is a lover of the ocean, of wildlife in the ocean, who has an attraction to the sea, who's a physicist, who is most importantly an explorer. So without further ado, Let's listen to Mark. I want to just start by welcoming you to Date Your Ego, Marry Your Soul podcast, Mark. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Serafina, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, Mark, I want to start by referencing this book, but not getting into the discussion uh, of the book just as yet. But I'd like to first tell you that this book is a real treasure and it's it's just such a gift to anyone who picks it up, really. Um, but before we get into that, I want to ask you to tell the audience a bit about yourself. Who are you? Where do you live? How would you like the audience to think about Mark and Spencer? Mark <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, my name is easy to remember because I'm, I'm aware that there's a, uh, a store in London called Marks and Spencers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Marks, exactly. and, Marks and Spencer. Yeah, we don't have one in Australia or uh, in any of the big cities, but I, I'm constantly reminded of that. Um, well, uh, in short, uh, I'm a recently retired dentist. And when I say recently retired, only about two months ago, um, you know, I hung up the uh, the mirror, so to speak. I'm still registered for a bit longer, but not for too much. Um, that's been a, a great profession, uh, one that I think has suited me well, um, mm -hmm. but uh, a demanding profession. But somehow alongside that profession of dentistry, I've also had uh, a very great passion for underwater exploration and photography. 
mostly ocean diving, but uh, for a period of time, I did some cave diving as well. So that's freshwater subterranean caves, um, mm. but mostly ocean diving. And um, yeah, so it's been, a, I suppose you could say uh, a, a dual vocation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like have, it. yeah mm -hmm. um, and somehow I've been able to make it work, quite possibly because I ended up marrying a lady who we didn't have any children, which makes a big difference. Uh, and and yeah. um, she had a, a, a similar passion for underwater photography and diving. So we were able to share that common interest, which gave me a lot of uh, latitude to ex explore that other side of, of my life mm -hmm. mm, yes indeed that's very fortunate that you found a partner with the same sort of dedication and interest in um you know what was what's below uh the ocean um i want to begin uh talking about the book by first asking you about being an explorer you 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 um seem to know this segment of the population very well um what is an explorer well uh an explorer is uh one who seeks knowledge of that which is not known so if there's a mystery somewhere whether it be a, a geographic place or a uh, an idea or a body of knowledge. Uh, an explorer wants to know uh, a bit more about how that thing works or about its nature. Um, traditionally, an explorer has traveled somewhere. Um, these days, of course, um, I guess under the ocean, there's still lots of places to explore and out in space. Um, so I suppose geographic travel is not so important these days. Um, but what is important is that we, uh, we go out on the search for information to give us more knowledge about something that's unknown. And, and a lot of people consider a true explorer as different to just a, an adventurer, uh, as someone who also documents their exploration. So they record it uh, in... Uh, printed media or video um, and share it with others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the major, that's the big difference I think uh, uh, with between an explorer and just an adventurer. The explorer wants to share that knowledge with others um, to see if there's a, an agreement, if there's a, a correspondence of ideas, um, even if, even if the exploration is not, uh, through a microscope or a telescope, but it's within the, you know, the mind itself. Mm -hmm. that, that to me is a legitimate exploration as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, exploring the dimensions of our own mind, our own consciousness. Uh, although we can't prove that in the traditional sense with uh, testing or observation, uh, we can share that knowledge. And if others uh, have the same sort of experiences, then we can try to put a a, a reason to it or a, a science behind into it, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And what I really liked about what you said, and also you touch upon this in the book, is that there's this desire to share, this mm. desire to share from 
the insights that you've um, you know had on your journeys exploring whatever it might be in your case it's the um, world below in the oceans but um, yes and it reminds me of um, like Buddhism really because the philosophy of Buddhism as you understand more practice more is for self and for others so mm. you know when you share your joy is doubled when you share the knowledge is doubled and sh and so the world is doubly blessed really is what i think so i really like that yeah thank you and and sometimes i just share the stories of uh, my underwater adventures without trying to put too much meaning to them Right. I am a bit of a philosopher at heart, so I, I have to watch myself at times. <laughs> but sometimes uh, just telling the story uh, of the manta rays or, you know, encounter with different animals, um, you let people make their own uh, conclusions or deductions about broader possibilities, uh, you know, about the world around us and our, our relationship with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, not everyone can... Um can uh, explore the ocean like you can for one just on mm. you know a physical level but on a deeper level uh your explorations have given you insights that i feel will add to everyone's um perspective about the ocean it's not just a place you go and swim and you watch these fantastic videos on national geographic it's not that there's more to it yes um, that's right yeah that's right. Well, that, that was it. I, I always wanted to get beneath the surface of things. <laughs> and um, throughout our lives, we, we see people wanting to live closer to the ocean, people having a relationship with the ocean, whether it be through surfing or just, as I say, living near it or watching it um, or sailing on it. Um, and I've always wondered why we have that particular attraction. Not everyone. Mm. why so many of us have that attraction to the sea. Mm. I mean, you you definitely, um, in the book, touched upon your boyhood, which I loved, by the way. <laughs> and um, it seemed to me you already then you had an intimate connection with yourself at a soul level. Um, and you spoke of this feeling you had as a little boy uh, when you stood, was it? At Sydney Harbour or was it Manly Beach? Man I don't Manly know. on the north side of Sydney Harbour. That's right, yeah. And you you felt like the ocean was calling out to you. You felt like you wanted to know what was down below. I wondered if you might describe that feeling, if you might remember it and, um, sure. you know, touch upon what gave you the courage to answer that call, Mark? Because we have so many feelings and not all of us follow them. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I was very young. I was only about 10, 10 years of age, and I suppose um, a 10-year-old, um, the, the, the mind is very open, you know, it's like a sponge. Um, I think we had visited uh, the Manly Aquarium, as it was then called, at Manly, um, where I saw the sharks and the rays and the fish, and... Uh, it was after that, probably after that visit, that I just looked into the harbour and I thought, oh, you know, some of those creatures I just saw are down there. Uh, but it was murky and, you know, you couldn't see more than a few feet under the surface and basically like a, a mystery, 
Mm-hmm. And, and I and I think as a young ten year old, I was thinking, "Gee, what's what's under there?" You know, I can't see it, uh, but I want to know about it. So it, I think even from that very young age, there was this: um, if it's hidden, you know, I wanted to know what was beyond the 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 you know the curtain. <laughs> um, so it was a curiosity, I suppose, mm-hmm. and uh, and that curiosity. Uh, obviously didn't eventuate straight away. I, I had to grow another 10, 12, 13 years yes, <laughs> um, yes. before it, it eventuated into learning to dive and, um, you know, be, becoming an underwater explorer. Mm. I mean, the reason that really stood out for me is because I think culturally a lot of our curiosities, in fact, sometimes... Uh, not just our wants and desires are shot down because they won't be useful to us in some way economically mostly and yeah yeah, and that was really i think that really um started the string of um growth that sort of you very nicely take us through in your book you know right from then to right to the end so i wanted to touch upon that um but you did say you you would like to talk about um, some of the encounters you've had with animals, and I want to talk about Herbie and the manta rays before sure. we TM. But if you could tell us a bit about your interaction, that would be wonderful. Yes, certainly. So um, <clears throat> I think the two of the stories that come to mind in my book that I related to was um, one was a whale shark, or well. Uh, yeah, a swim with whale sharks, mm-hmm. uh, huge creatures, but very gentle, uh, n- not at all interested in eating us <laughs> because they filter the water out and eat much smaller things. Um, and the story I related in the book was um, a young shark, uh, whale shark that we called Herbie, H-E-R-B-I-E. And uh, he was only, well, I don't know, <clears throat> Taller than I, longer than I am, <laughs> so <laughs> ten feet, ten feet or so. Yeah. And uh, it was my turn to swim back to the boat, and uh, it followed me. It kept following me, you know, right behind me. And I was wondering why it was doing that. I, I couldn't figure that out. <laughs> so I got back to the boat, and the shark put its mouth uh, up against the the uh, platform at the stern of the boat. And people in the that was standing on that platform just knelt down and patted the shark on its back. And I thought, well, I might as well, I was in the water, I might as well do the same. So I was patting the, patting the shark. Oh, God. <laughs> it, it, just, it just sort of, uh, you know, happily, we did happily put up with that or, you know, uh, for a couple of minutes and then it swam off. But uh, that that experience reset my attitude to wild animals, and it was a shark. Okay, it's not a shark with the typical teeth that uh, can bite animals and humans, but it still is a shark family. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it demonstrated curiosity and trust, uh, and. Um, and I thought that was a pretty amazing. So it resets your, you know, what are the typical attitudes that people have to the, a lot of the wild animals in, 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 in 
in the world. Uh, so that, that was just my one example of a, a wildlife interaction. I guess the other uh, wildlife experience that we had, which really is worth mentioning, was that Becca and I went on a long trip to uh, Mexico uh, on the other side of the Pacific Ocean to where we live. Mm -hmm. And then we then sailed in a west direction uh, from Mexico out and into the Pacific Ocean till we reached an island called San Benedicto Island. And there was a, a sort of a, vo a volcanic seamount just next to that island. And around that submerged seamount, were huge, big manta rays. So manta rays, for those people who don't know what they are, they're not a stingray. Mm -hmm. They don't have a stinging barb. Mm -hmm. um, and they tend not to dwell on the bottom but swim freely through the column of the ocean, through the midwater. They're very big and they have what we call cephalic lobes or horns. They look like, look like devil horns. Yeah. And uh, fishermen in the past have called them devil fish because of this and because of their black, black coloration, I guess. Um, we found them to be the total the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for reasons that will unfold later, I would call them the angels of the sea. Mm. Um, but they uh, were quite amazing because after about a day of swimming with them, they would actually come up very close to us and even park right under us and, and kind of stay still. Mm. And um, we, 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 we knew that it was a sort of an invitation where we could have a more intimate reaction, uh, interaction with the, the, uh, the fish. They are a fish. And so we'd swim down and you'd touch the, uh, the back of the manta, often feel and see a little quiver of muscle, you know, like a sensuous quiver uh, yeah, as yeah, you touch yeah. the back, uh, the muscle quiver. And then um, it was a, an introduction of sorts and then you could just grab the top of the mouth and slowly settle your knees down on the back and it would take you for a gentle swim through, the, wow. through its, its environment. And they were big and powerful. These ones were much bigger than we typically see off the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. They were like five metres across from wingtip to wingtip. Wow. Um, yeah, four or five metres, quite big. Mm. And uh, they were very powerful swimmers. They, they could easily eject us if they wanted to. Uh, you know, people say, you know, there could be animal harassment, but we, mm. we were very uh, inefficient in the ocean compared to them. <laughs> yes. Um, so they're, they're, also we observed a, a playful behaviour. Um, mm. You know, I photographed and I've got photographic evidence of one doing loop-to-loops around Becca, who did the same thing, and <laughs> so it's doing loop-to-loops around each other. Um, mm. Other behaviour that indicated a, a real curiosity a real trust um, and, and a, or dare I say, a playfulness. Uh, these are hard things to prove. You have to witness and experience it to, uh, to appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that, you know, this was an animal that was as far removed from us anatomically, physiologically, mm -hmm. in all ways. It could be an alien from another planet. And, in fact, sometimes I like to think that maybe the aliens from the other planet 
uh, you know, here we were having such a, a wonderful interrelationship with these manta rays and uh-huh. make the same things possible in a stellar, interstellar sense. But anyway, that was, so, that was an experience that, that does affect you in, in a big way. And you might have read the story, which you might want to lead me on to now or later, and that was the encounter with that young boy who had leukaemia. Yeah, adopted a relationship with manta rays. Mm. Yes, I remember that. I was very touched by that story. I'd be happy for you to share it, but before you do that, I just wanted to quickly touch upon these um, very interesting insights you shared with us from your explorations. I mean, I think what you said hit the nail on the head. We do have an impression about um, wildlife in the ocean, at least mine. I, I share the Unfortunately, I share the same impression as the majority of the world in that we are scared. We are fearful. We've been taught to be scared of them. Um, And um, it's really good that you're there sharing these stories because now we think of them as different. We don't think of them as animals that need to be hunted or run from, you know. They're just like... um, like as gentle as dolphins we always have that impression about dolphins um so yeah i think that's really good to share that because uh it changes our perspective about wildlife in the ocean but but hearing you speak about the manta ray and i sorry i was gonna say i did uh come close to a manta ray in tobago okay Uh, we were staying in the fishing village and there was this one giant manta ray that would come swimming with its baby every day to the beach and then swim off. And um, yeah, you could just, they they just seem like they're flying, don't they, underwater? And And, and riding on the back of one is the closest thing I could imagine to riding on the back of a bird. (laughs) Yes. I mean, when I read that, I was like, this is fascinating. Then you got to do it. It does affect you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it expanded my horizons and I'm sure it's going to do that for every reader. So yes, please, from that, do talk about Reese. Yes. So um, I was uh, later commissioned to do a, the photography for uh, the Australian Geographic magazine or the journal of the Australian Geographic Society. Uh, mm-hmm. They wanted me to do the phot- photography um, on manta rays, which involved mm-hmm. a couple of trips to the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, we That story came out and um, not long after it had come out, I got a phone call from a uh, a friend of ours who is a cancer research scientist. Mm-hmm. And uh, she uh, had befriended a, a, a young 12-year-old boy who was dying of a, a rare form of leukaemia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there wasn't anything more they could do for him, so his time was very limited. And uh, he had, for some reason, which I go into in the book, well, I speculate in the book, uh, he had adopted manta rays as his total passion. Yeah, that was everything he thought about. He 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 just absorbed himself in manta rays. Could I come over? They said and give give show him some of my pictures. So we lived pretty close at the time to that hospital in which he was in, the Sydney Children's Hospital. 
-hmm. And I went over there and I gave him a little slideshow of our interactions with the mantas and riding on them and all the all the beautiful pictures of manta rays. Mm. And he had read all the literature and the Australian Geographic article, and he corrected me when I made a few mistakes. Did um, he? Oh. <laughs> he was an expert now. I said, okay. <laughs> and um, he, he was clearly very sick, though. Um, mm. And then when I left, uh, he said to his father, uh, I'm ready now for a big manta ray to come and take me away from this misery. And um, his father confirmed that with me um, later on at a, um, a meeting we had. And um, so it was true. I, when his father said that, I was rather curious about, about what was going on. And I, I spoke to the head nurse uh, at the children's hospital. I remember mm -hmm. her name now, Jan Hardy. Uh -huh. And um, she said uh, that it was quite common for uh, children to adopt an animal or maybe even an inanimate object like a tricycle or whatever mm. as a vehicle into the next life. And they were her words. And she said, quite matter-of-factly, they adopt mm. some, some animal or uh, object uh, as some sort of uh, a company, uh, company to go into the next life with. And mm. um, that... that that the fact that he had said to his father, I'm ready for a big manta to take me away, um, can, kind of verifies that. Yeah. Now, as far as I know, the children aren't indoctrinated with, you know, ideas from the parents. No. <laughs> I'm sure, I doubt that would have happened in, in this circumstance. Um, but it does make me think more and more of the manta rays, certainly not as devil fish, but the opposite as being um, maybe the angels of the sea. Uh, but um, certainly in, from the point of view of Reese, it fulfilled that role. And in my book, I do explain the reasons why I think he adopted manta rays and, and the Sahol Ocean theme and you know, talking about uh, the things I talk about in the book, but I, I don't want to jump into that now. Hmm. No, I, I think oh, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I was really touched by that story, uh, not only because I believe in the purity of children's intentions, uh, but also because... I think as we grow older, we lose our connection to mystical possibilities. And I think mm. as a, and that's why maybe she said that as children are sick or about to pass, they, they choose some sort of animal or object. Um, and I think the reason that touched me is because I've spoken to a few people that support, um, you know, the elderly as they're passing off. And mm. you, you find that, that that degree of freedom is not always there once sure. you get that old. And that was really, uh, that stood out for me from the story. I think children, you're right. Uh, I think children have that innocent uh, connection with their, maybe their spiritual self Mm -hmm. um, until it's uh, driven out by uh, education and rationality and, um, you know, materialism and okay. uh, yeah. uh, reliance yeah. on the senses and uh, stop, imagine, stop imagining things. <laughs> uh, 
you know, I think it's wonderful. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of like believing in Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, not, you know, and a lot of people say, well, yeah, but that's not the truth. It's not, uh, it's not reality, you know, but, but I think it's great that children can expand their uh, imagination um, because, so well, okay, sure, a lot of what we believe or adhere to when we're young isn't factual, but there are also a lot of things that uh, I think there's a lot of connection they have, a lot of spirituality that's built into children and maybe mm. ability that is somehow lost over the years. Yeah, and I think I think what that does and what that enables people to do once they reconnect as adults, but children definitely have this, is it allows you ease when you're getting through circumstances when you're getting through a tough time, when you're having to get through a tough mm. time, that sort of freedom to allow yourself that innocent, um, you know, I don't know, believing or even attachment is, what is it? You you allow yourself to go with your imagination, isn't it? Sure. Uh, it gets you through stuff. It gets you through really difficult stuff. So it's important yeah. to have, I think. It and is keep- good because there is a part of ourselves that, isn't involved in the hard times and the and mm. the, you know, the disease and the uh, mm. the trauma and the whether it be physical or psychological there is a part of ourselves that remains remote from all that mm-hmm. so you know why not connect with that um you know i think that's 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 a great way to uh to work through the the difficulties in 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 our material life Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think we're at a good point where we've sort of introduced the idea of a spiritual self. Um, would it be okay for us to start talking about your spiritual life and meditation, particularly transcendental meditation? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a bit about it, but I'd love to hear from you. What is it? And what? And you speak about the Maharishi effect, if you can touch upon that. Yeah, then. sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, um, so uh, I, I guess I guess when did I learn about meditation? I was brought up a Roman Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not really active with with my uh, religion now. I haven't left it. I'm just inactive. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at around the age of 27, I guess I I read read something about transcendental meditation in Reader's Digest, it sounded like a, a good technique. It wasn't uh, promoted as being a religion or involving a cult or involving any particular belief system. Rather, mm. it was promoted as a, a technique, uh, a mental technique to uh, uh, transcend the noise of the senses, if you wish, mm-hmm. go into a quieter state of our own self, our own being, Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the article at the time uh, promoted lots of physiological medical benefits in that, which were proven. So I guess the at that time transcendental meditation was very much uh, adopted by the medical fraternity um, because there was uh, a lot of study, a lot of scientific study done on its benefits. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was still a bit of a sceptic and I asked a, a medical friend of mine who, who was doing it 
I said, Tim, what's this TM all about? You know, <laughs> is it worth yeah. what I'm doing? He said, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, out of, again, out of that sense of curiosity, I, uh, I learned it. And um, I then, I think, as an ex my own little experiment, stopped doing it for, you know, weeks or months and then found myself naturally going back to it again because obviously I must have been feeling the benefits when I was doing it and uh, enjoying the benefits. So I've been doing, I had been doing then 20 minutes of transcendental meditation uh, morning and evening since the age of 27 or whatever. And um, I haven't looked back and, and uh, um, I'm pretty religious at it <laughs> in the sense of not um, letting it miss. Yeah, I miss it occasionally, but, um, you know, it's just part of a, a life ritual now. Yeah. I'm a busy, distracted man. I, you know, I get involved in too many things, but um, mm -hmm. I've always found time. Now, people say I've got no time for that. Well, when it benefits you a lot, you do have time for it. Yeah, oh, God. Uh, so, look, uh, TM, um, yes, I benefited from it. Uh, probably a little bit of uh, family history comes with some anxiety and depression in the family and, I've been fortunate not to suffer clinical depression, but I probably am prone to a bit of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Maybe a lot of people are in this modern world. I oh don't know. God. Everyone. Yeah, maybe everyone is. We just don't always admit it. Um, but anyway, I, I did find TM to be a great um, leveller for me in that regard. Um, it, it was good for me, you know, and um, I do believe that it's helped my health. Um now, regarding the spirituality side of it, uh, while you're actually meditating, I, I don't recall too many times where I had experiences that you would call mystical or spiritual. Mm -hmm. uh, I did it a few times, um, and, and that's wonderful. But I think when you read about uh, the goal of meditation, which is to reach that stillness within, yeah. But you don't seek out experiences, if no, you know what you I mean. Don't. Yeah. yeah. If it happens, it happens, you know. Um, and really, it hasn't happened very often while I'm meditating, but it probably has affected the physiology, the nervous system, the, the you know, your whole being in some ways where increasingly through life, whether it be in the dreaming state or in the waking state or whatever. Sometimes yeah. you, get, you get these little uh, spiritual experiences. Yeah. And they're wonderful because they, you know that there is that broader dimension to our existence. You know, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to be told, you, you know. And, um, uh, and that's, that's why it can be very comforting. Mm -hmm. so, so TM has done that for me. I, I think I find it uh, settling and um, I just do it because it, it, it helps me, levels me out and um, benefits me in ways which I probably can't always quantify. Uh, but, yes, there has been that spiritual growth as well. Uh, I think that happens with effective meditation, no matter what type of meditation you do. Mm -hmm. If it's achieving that goal of transcending consciousness, transcending through the physical senses, you are going to gradually... Uh, expand your level of consciousness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I mean, are you at liberty to share how you do it? Is it just you sit down, you close your eyes, and you start breathing? Yeah, Is... um, I, I, I don't I, I don't get into the specifics of it because yeah. um, I'm always concerned that that might interfere with someone else's technique. Absolutely. You know, they would be throwing that my Absolutely. method. Absolutely. No, just, just yeah. whatever you're to say, yeah. yeah. Generally speaking, um, the, the transcendental meditation involves the use of a, a mantra, which is mm -hmm. a word, and um, it's a non-specific word. It, it, it doesn't have any meaning. You don't say uh, apple or love or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, then the mind can mind can, could attach to that object or that concept and be a distractor. So it's usually a a nonsensical word, which just um, when, when it's repeated, it tends to uh, settle back more and more into the background. <laughs> yeah. It becomes, it becomes uh, instead of a big bubble at the surface of the ocean, it becomes a uh, an ever diminishing bubble of thought uh, as you go down into that uh, ocean or pond of your consciousness. Yeah, the bubble disappears. So the thought or the mantra. Um, disappears. Now, sometimes when you transcend, when you go into those depths, uh, it releases a bit of uh, tension in the nervous system, which comes out as a thought. Maybe you're thinking about things that happened that day or just totally un unrelated, you know, un unexpected things. And then quietly, when you realise you're thinking about something, you just gently go back to your mantra again. So sometimes you get this, you know, dipping down, coming up, dipping down. Uh, but then sometimes you just end up thinking of nothing and, and it's um, a beautiful experience. So mm -hmm. Just a, a blissful, you, you're awake, you're not asleep, you're very much aware, but aware of nothing in particular. And I'm sure mm -hmm. I'm describing what you would have felt and everyone would have experienced and probably can relate to. Yeah. It's, a formal technique of meditation that works well allows you to do this on a more frequent basis, but everyone's probably experienced it to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I think everything you've described is very much in line with my own experience in that when I sit to meditate, um, you know, and then the more regular I am, I can transcend the busyness of my ego, I like to call it. Yes, it is, yeah. Um, and I can become an observer. Um, and uh, for me personally, that, that, pro that there's just that process of experiencing that you can become an observer and going and you can get into that silence, however you do it. Mm. It's very enlightening. It's very mm. enlightening because it shows me that my busyness is not necessarily me. That's right. Mm. It's not all of me. It's not all of you, that's right. <laughs> and so it, it gives me hope when the busyness is crazy or negative. And mm. it gives me joy when the busyness is positive. But I can still just observe it and so there's a distance that's possible and if it's possible there it's possible in life that's you know? right yeah and that's a benefit yeah and and maharishi mahesh yogi who introduced uh the transcendental medita meditation technique to the busy western world um, yeah. and he passed on a 
a technique which was passed on through you know generations of people uh, of, yeah, of uh, gurus and so forth so anyway with meditation um that's what it's like it, it, it's the the ego as you refer to it uh would be that part of ourself that part of our consciousness which is very much tied up with the senses and the yeah. senses keep us engaged with that busy world you know um that we're engaged with and that's part of our experience and 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 that's you know you can go into the reasons you know we, we we're all here experiencing ourselves for whatever reason uh apparently as separate creatures um but but really you know when you get beneath the surface of things um and that's again what i talk about in the book is that we reach a, a part of consciousness which is not tied up with our senses mm-hmm. um and it's it's a, a a universal uh part of consciousness uh, it's the ocean of consciousness that i talk about the ocean of self that is common to everyone mm-hmm. now if you can accept that uh and it is a notion common to everyone when we die we transcend those senses you know we no longer have the senses so yeah. surely there must be that part of us that we experience in meditation that stays on you know that 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 to me seems sensible because it's not just my consciousness it's everyone else's as well now i'm sure we still maintain some of our individuality um mm-hmm. that's getting it that's getting quite deep now but um uh that that's the enduring perpetual part of ourselves that that is the fundamental part of ourselves as you talk about you know the um that we can reach and go beyond when we're having troubles in life and we all do have right. those uh, those episodes in our lives the roller coaster experience <laughs> yes and i think i think the more you acquaint and then get to know that quiet self uh the more you're able to weather storms without totally destroying yourself or other people in the process you know i think i think that's the big learning for me it's like a buffer and you know you can turn to it but having said that there are times when i will still uh be too tired or be uh or just be too distracted and i won't and that's sort of my ego winning that day and i have to then tell myself okay your ego can win you know sometimes it's okay it's not a bad thing it will happen it it's it's just what happens is there's no right or wrong it's just what no, happens yeah uh, that is very true and um yeah i think the, that that's a good point you raise we have to be very easy with it um you know you're not going to be scolded because you missed, <laughs> you missed yeah. the <laughs> meditation um i i think uh once you realize and experience the benefits of it um you know there's no way you're going to give it away <laughs> because it's just yeah. such a great uh a great treasure a, a great gift you know in life and mm-hmm. yes as you said you still experience the ups and downs you know yeah. you still feel a bit low sometimes a bit high but maybe those uh, ups and downs aren't quite as um dramatic and as tearing as uh, as they could be when when you know when you've experienced that that steadiness inside you yeah that, that infiltrates 
Um, that's what I was going to say earlier, and I, I, my, my mind went right. wandered off. Uh, Maharishi Maheshogi uh, always said that if you keep meditating, uh, then the experience of that meditation uh, will, like dyeing a, a cloth, you know, where you put it in the dye and then you put it out in the sun, it, it, it fades a bit, then you keep, dye, keep putting it back in and it, it, it becomes an, more enriched with the colour. And that's yeah. the same with meditation. The more you do it, the more your nervous system actually becomes influenced by that and they can measure that, you know, with uh, electroencephalogram uh, readings. They can mm -hmm. measure the uh, over uh, a, a few months of meditation, yeah. uh, the the change in brainwave activity, which more and more resembles that you have when in, in, in meditation. And that's called that's called cosmic consciousness, at least how it's defined by Maharishi. Mm -hmm.